Welcome to the Construction Insiders Podcast, where our host, Jessica Bush, talks with industry experts about new trends, best practices, and how to successfully deliver construction projects in today's market. Whatever your role on a project, we think you'll find these discussions interesting and worth your time. All right. Thank you, Brad. Today, we are going to sit down and we are talking about education once again. Only this time, we're going to be looking at K-12. We have Jeff Holstein, Kanal Shah. They are two of our best experts, most knowledgeable experts in this sector specifically. So we are excited to sit down, hear from them about what is going on in K-12, what to expect in the future, and how we're navigating this currently. So thank you both, gentlemen. Hopefully today we can have a insightful conversation about what you're seeing, your experiences, and how we move forward. So thank you. Thank you. All right, to kick this off, Jeff, I have a question for you because we've been hearing a lot about this. It's not going away. In the South, which is where you focus, when we're talking K-12, we're hearing still a lot about CMAP risk. What are your thoughts? How is that going? And why is it still so popular? First of all, we have to think about where we're working right now in both North Carolina and South Carolina, which is where we focus. And in North Carolina, it's been going on for quite some time, but here in South Carolina, only in about the last 10 or so years has it been an accepted delivery method. Prior to that, everything was design, bid, build, gave rise to the emergence of program and project management, while firms like ours were very popular. I guess if you're looking at pros and cons, the pro is that it gives a school district an ability to select based on qualifications as opposed to waiting to bid day to find out who their contract is going to be. Data we have in our experience is that there's a price premium associated with being able to pick your contractor. It can be very difficult to really get an apples-to-apples comparison, however, because rarely is the same type project bid, same location, at the same time. But not too long ago, we were able to get what we think is an excellent comparison, the school district that we work for in the upper part of the state. We were the program manager, and the owner wanted to try to do at least one project, see him at risk, because he knew some of his colleagues were doing that in other school districts. And so we were using prototype construction there. That simply means it's the same design replicated over and over. So we competitively bid, design, bid, build, an elementary school in early October of a particular year. About six or seven weeks later, right before Thanksgiving, we bid the second elementary school. Once again, it's a prototype. Now, the numbers that I'm going to discuss have nothing to do with site work because site can be different from location to location. This is just the building itself. Both of those buildings were right in the million dollar range. In fact, they were within a couple hundred thousand dollars of each other. At the same time this was going on, the third prototype elementary school was making its way through the CM at risk process. And we were about four months away from getting the CM at risk price. Fast forward to April, we get the GMP, which stands for Guaranteed Max Price. And you can edit this out if you want to, but I'm going to say there's nothing guaranteed or max about it. I don't think we need to edit that out. That is just the truth, right? (laughs) 
But at any rate, when we got the GMP from the contractor, it was like $25 million. Plus, it was five and some change million over what the other two were bid just five months before. And of course, the owner was very surprised at that. He felt like he couldn't dare take that number to his board and ask them to pay $5 million more for a bid. Now listen, that's 25% more. Now, I'm not here to say that it's always going to be a premium of that size. I'm sure it would vary from time to time, day to day, place to place. But it was a little too much for that owner to stomach. So we went back to the contractor and tried to work with him, looking at some cost savings measures. So after three or four weeks, the contractor came back with about $400,000 in savings. That didn't put much of a dent in the $5 million difference. The owner asked us to essentially pay the seam at risk for what he had done through that date and it back out onto the bidding market. And when we did, the number came in almost exactly what it did five months before. In fact, I think the price was right between the price of the first two projects that we had bid back in October and November of the year before. So rarely do you get that kind of apples to apples comparison. The only other one I would mention, if you'd like to hear about it, is down in a lower part of the country, lower part of the state, that is. We were working with another school district and we were doing two projects, both of which were additions renovations. One of them was a lot more complex. And I'll discuss that one more in a minute after I go over the numbers and tell you why we chose Seaman Risk. The other one was design bid bill. And after bids were taken on both or the guaranteed max price and then the bids, we decided to do a division by division comparison. What do I mean by that? A job is divided into divisions of construction. You have concrete, you have steel, you have HVAC, you have plumbing, that kind of thing. So when we looked, based on the contractor's schedule of values, when we looked at what we were paying for each one of those divisions, it was consistently higher on the CM at risk side. Now, in some cases, it might be 30% higher. In other cases, it was only 2 or 3% higher. I'm convinced that was because of the relative cost of each one of those divisions. In some cases, we were probably getting some economy of scale. In some cases, we were paying through the nose. But those are the best, most recent examples we have to demonstrate that there is a premium associated with CM at risk. The difficult thing to try to communicate to a K-12 owner is how much is it going to be? If it's 2 or 3%, then maybe they're thinking, hey, our ability to select our contractor is worth that. If it's 10, 15%, then I think the question becomes, is it responsible use of taxpayer money? In talking about responsible use, the 2 3% in terms of transparency with the community, that might make sense to the community. When we're talking 10, 15, 20, whatever it is percent above, that is not maybe the best use of taxpayer money. And if they can hire a program management firm at two, three, four percent, then you see the spread there. As an owner advocate. As an owner advocate. Really overseeing that. Okay. Correct. Now, I'll just continue, if I could, yeah. to talk about the semen risk delivery method. I don't want the listener to get the wrong idea. We're not against it. There's a yes. place for it. For example, if a project, and the one I described earlier, the, the addition renovation, was on a very small site, the schedule was going to be very difficult to meet, 
So it had a series of complexities about it that made you, whoever you were, want to select your contractor. We as the program manager wanted to select the contractor, the owner wanted to select the contractor, the architect wanted to select the contract. We wanted to know who was going to build that project because the level of complexity was such that we didn't want to leave it to the sort of hard. You needed that control. Absolutely, absolutely. Our sort of overriding philosophy, if it's a brand new school, on a new greenfield site, the owner is going to get the best bang for their buck using a design bid build method, perhaps with pre-qualification, which I'll talk about in a moment, and utilizing a project management firm like ourselves. Now, I mentioned pre-qualification is a technique we've used, and we think it sort of hits a good middle ground between a complete design bid bill where any bidder can show up and turn in a bid and the CM at risk delivery method because what we do is we will receive qualification packages from general contractors that are interested in bidding the project and we may receive six or eight packages but we may only pre-qualify with the owner's help three or four perhaps five general contractors to bid the work that way these GCs know who they're competing against. They don't have to worry about an unknown contractor coming in and lowballing the project. And it gives, I think, the owner some comfort that they know is bidding the project as well. So we've utilized that on a number of projects over the last 10 years or so, provided that the owner's procurement code allows for that. Some may not. But that's always a question we ask early on in the life of a building program. So really trying to mitigate that risk of price increases, cost increases from the very beginning. Exactly. And not having a bid get turned in, relatively unknown contractor who then comes back to you a week later and say, hey, I left out such and such that's worth $800,000. And then you have to throw his bid out and go to the next low bid. And all of that is time consuming. Which is money. Which is money. <laughs> and we use that a lot in West Coast as well. So basically design bid build with pre-qualification. It's standard in West Coast as well. And as you mentioned, if you have a complex project, you want a contractor with special skill set, we put that in criteria requirements. And that would be the criteria of the shortlisting three to five contractors. And then they can go ahead and beat that job. To make sure that shortlist has the experience. Yes. So there's no surprises down the road. Yeah. So interesting. We've talked a lot about what is popular in the South right now. Kanal, I'll switch it over to you about what we're seeing in the West. And it sounds like there are some differences in how things handled. Yes. So West, usually we use project delivery methods like design, build, build with pre-qualification. Design, build is pretty popular there too. And we also use lease, lease back. So lease, lease back is basically a method where you are going to, again, it's related to pre-qualification. We'll ask for the pre-qualification packages from the various contractors. Then we, along with the district staff, will shortlist the contractors, we'll interview them, and then we'll end up selecting one contractor who would provide both pre-construction and construction services. Okay. We use that a lot, but as far as project management is concerned, in West, we use two different models. One is staff augmentation. The bigger clients usually use staff augmentation. They'll come out with a job requisition and with a fixed hourly rate. So that would be pool of consultants who can submit the resumes and they will shortlist few candidates, they'll interview, and a particular candidate would be hired. So that's something very different that we haven't heard about in the South, the staff augmentation part. 
Yes. Okay. And then the other one is CM agency. So again, if it's a smaller client, they want to hire a team of consultants. So that's where they will request proposals from PM, CM firms. We'll provide the proposals. They'll again shortlist an interview and come up with a qualified CM, PM firm to manage that project. In that particular method, we'll provide a team of people at uh, with time and material. So you'll have fixed hourly rates over a period of time, and that would establish our overall contract amount. So as far as like one of the pro I see for the staff augmentation is for the bigger clients and flexibility. They can bring people when and as required and try to get best talent out from the market through different firms. Because when you're doing staff augmentation, instead of one firm competing for that lump sum, it can be multiple firms with individuals in their yes. expertise from different, across different firms yes. working together. The only con I see there as a client, you'll be hiring an individual. So you won't have a form who would be accountable. So, you know, you are hiring individuals. But typically that is done by bigger clients. Mm -hmm. They have their policies and procedures in place. They have their standards in place. And they have staff in place too to help, right? Yeah. Okay. So the CM agency, the pro-IC, usually it's done by the smaller clients. And that they want experts like us to come on board, help them set up their design standards, their standard operating procedures, project management plan. And they can get individual accountability as a company accountability because all team members in that team would be from coming. Interesting. Okay. So two very different approaches. Yes. Yes, it's just something that's not used very much in either one of the Carolinas. We actually got our first staff augmentation assignment a few weeks ago with the Midlands South Carolina School District. One person for about six months. So we'll get a chance to see how that works. Might be coming this way. It might be. (laughs) But historically, we've been asked to provide lump sum contracts for all PM services. And I think depending on your point of view, you look at these things as to whether they are pros or cons. I think the pro from a school district standpoint is they know on day one how much they're going to pay for our services for two years, three years, four years, whatever the length of the program, and they know that number is not going to change unless they add to the scope. And it's stability for the consultancy and it's stability for the district. Absolutely. There's a comfort level there, I think, on both sides of having a lump sum contract. So yeah, it's a lot different than what Canal is used to, but we would certainly welcome staff augmentation to come this way. <laughs> won't turn it down. Not at all. So changing directions of the conversation a little bit, talking about just the general market, the volatility we're seeing on the construction side of things in general, those daily changes, what are your teams focusing on in terms of trying to mitigate that risk for the day-to-day challenges we're seeing? So it's a really hot topic right now. Post-COVID, we have seen a lot of volatility in the market. And it's not going away. Yeah. Like, for example, lumber prices skyrocketed. Steel prices skyrocketed. But one of the things with coming, we have coming insight and we get the market trends on monthly basis. Provides us a good gauge to see how the market is going to act. The other thing is supply chain and logistics impacts are huge. Right now, if you want to get HVAC units on the West Coast, it's six months out. Six months to get yeah. HVAC. Switch gears are 12 months. What was it before these issues? So before those would be like HVAC unit would be like maybe two months. Switch so four gear. months we're yeah. adding on just for yeah. HVAC. Interesting. Switch gear might be three months. It's doubled or four times in certain cases. We were thinking it would go away. It means we are out of COVID, but the situation is still the same. So the other thing is visual display boards, which are called marquee signs, like they are four months out. Education sector projects uses them a lot. 
for so the classrooms. It's like outside, like drive by, yeah, drive by signs. signs. So even things at that level, yeah, are just okay. So timelines have been skewed. Yes. Yeah, so what we do, we try to purchase these items directly as much as possible, rather than waiting for the contract contractor to get on board. So, for example, in California, we have CMAS contracts, which are like pre-negotiated contracts by state of California. So, district can use those and try to procure these materials or equipment beforehand. I'll give you an example. We are planning an HVAC project. Basically, it's set among 17 sites and there are 900 units that we are going to replace. It's going to happen in summer of 2023. What we did is during design phase, we started contacting the manufacturer that we use for HVAC unit. We walked all those sites along with the designer and the manufacturer. We came up with a complete list of inventory and exact model number. We were also able to get his price locked in. Then he started in good faith manufacturing those units. Now we are going to have a contractor. On, we already have a contractor on board. Come summer, these units will be available. If we would have waited for the contractor to come on board, there would have been no way we would have these so units. So you're locking in prices. Yes, yeah, locking in prices ahead of time. So they're available in summer so we can get the projects done in summer. Coming cost is our rules. We do a lot of estimating. Every phase of design, start like SDD, CD, we do estimates. And we keep on really checking that we are within budget. And every estimate is going to have an escalation, which is going to be from all the way up to midpoint of construction. Let's say if design gets impacted and midpoint of construction gets pushed out, we recalculate escalation accordingly. Most of the times, this escalation would be able to absorb some of the volatility in the market. Talking about escalation and things looking in terms of forecasting, what are you putting into the contracts now to help? So always put the standard contingency, so there will be contingency for construction, which depending on type of construction, if it's a brand new construction, it might be 5 to 10%. If it's modernization, it might be 10 to 15%. That will take care of construction changes related to enforcing conditions, errors and omissions, owner changes or any agency related changes. Have those changed? Have those numbers changed in the last year or two? What has changed is escalation. Okay. For example, we were carrying 4%. At time, we were all the way up to 10%. And at times, we were on top of escalation. We were having market condition factor to that. So th- that has changed a lot. But contingencies typically therefore that can go wrong on project. Those are typically still the same. We still use the same contingency percentages. But additionally, we use design contingencies and project contingencies too, just in case for any design cost overruns or soft cost overruns. So I'll give you an example of alternative thing we do. So I did talk about CMAS. So we've been trying that a lot. We are trying to do more and more of owner-furnished contractor-installed items. So one thing with that is we can basically lock in prices sooner. We can have equipment available on time. And we don't have to pay any overhead that a contractor would charge on that. Then sometimes we even go owner-furnished, owner-installed. So for example, like we have three uh, synthetic track and field projects this year. So last year, when we were planning the project, we came to know the prices of both installation and materials are going to go up. We went to the CMAS contract. We found the company that we wanted to hire this for. So we were able to lock in price for all those three fields, both material and installation, last December. Now we have contractor on board. We are already in production line. The material will be arriving in summer and we'll be able to deliver the track and field. Now as a project manager, you're seeing the kind of pre-construction, all of the pre-planning is even more important and you've been seeing more reliance on you guys and your team because you're literally out there from the beginning locking these prices a year in advance. 
Yes. Before the GCs on board. Yes. So that is change for sure. Before we would be relying on GCs on this kind of mm-hmm. things because of the longer timelines and volatility in pricing. Just financially doesn't yeah. make sense. We so now wanna, it's on yeah, your guys' yeah. plate. We just want to make sure that we are being creative and locking the pricing and materials. If I could go back just for a moment to the volatility question, <clears throat> I'd like to add something. I agree with everything Kanal said. That's not unique to the West Coast. We're seeing the same issues over here. Okay. I think one of the things that gives us an advantage, perhaps, over our competition is that we rely heavily on our own cost management team. We've got yes. hundreds of estimators that constantly stay abreast of the changing construction cost, and they're able to spot those trends. And so we may perhaps have an advantage in being able to advise owners that, hey, you know, six months from now, sheetrock is going to be out of sight or whatever the building material may be. The other thing that I think we look at is the, just as you mentioned, Canal, some of the early packages. For years now, we've been doing early site work packages, which can give an owner two advantages. Number one, they save the markup of the GC on the site development contract. Number two, it improves the schedule because we can go ahead and prepare, along with the architect and engineer, the bidding documents for the site work, while, and the site work can begin while the architect is finishing up the rest of the design documents. And so when the project is finally bid, the site is ready to go and the contractor can move on. Those are the kinds of things that we're constantly looking for as a way to improve both schedule, quality, budget, and everything else. And just to adapt to the current Whatever the situation market, yeah. is, absolutely. Interesting. Okay. So talking about adaption, always looking forward, forecasting, how has programming changed in the K-12 sector? Programming has changed a lot. For now, I like to say it's like iPhone generation. So everything is on technology. Technology has changed a lot. In classrooms, now we have high technology, maybe like audio, visual, high-end projections, smart boards. And everything is taught through technology. We need to provide wireless access points throughout the campus so they have proper network coverage. The other big thing is the learning space. So nowadays, a teacher wants more flexible learning space than co- traditional, conventional. Just sitting in a desk in the same spot yes. all day. Yes. We use 21st century furniture, which is like easily movable, so they can lay out the classroom the way they want, provide them more collaborative environment. Like many of my schools, we have these bifold doors, which is like garage doors. So you mm-hmm. can open the door and you go in the courtyard. In California, it's usually sunny, but we have shade structures, outside learning areas. They take classrooms outside into the courtyard. So Keep that, kids engaged. Yep. So that, and then security is a big thing. We Fair. have to think a lot about security, fencing. We are fencing all of our school sites, controlled access, intrusion systems, security cameras throughout. So it's a lot of things have changed from before. And we have to think about all this upfront during programming phase and planning. So we need to make sure we have good design standards upfront. And also we want to make sure that we include all this in our financial planning. We are going to establish our budgets on basis of this. We set aside a budget for FFNE, which is furniture, fixture and equipment. We work with the districts and make sure all these things in programming phase are properly identified and properly funded. So there are no surprises and it's transparent and it's collaborative. All while technology is changing on a daily basis, you're trying to plan for it. So to catch up with technology, <laughs> that's that's very interesting because like a life cycle of a project before it goes into construction might be a couple of years. To catch up with technology, it's a constant challenge. So we try to do as but much as... keeping that budget. Within the budget, I like to, yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I, again, agree with everything you said. I felt like I just walked out of a programming meeting somewhere in <laughs> South Carolina. And the only thing I would add to it is I think the clients or the owners have gotten more sophisticated over the last 10 years, whereas 10, 12, 15 years ago, an owner may have said, I know I need an elementary school here and I know I need a middle school here. Now they've become a little more willing to do what's called a facility study prior to trying to set a bond referendum. Not that they didn't do it 15 years ago, but we're seeing more of it now where, and it's actually a service that Cumming offers. We've done 15, 20, maybe 30 of them in our existence. For different districts? For different districts, yes. And so what we end up doing is walking each building. Sometimes we may employ engineers and architects to help in this endeavor, where we then try to determine the educational capacity of each school based on metrics in the learning community. Oftentimes that can inform or better inform the actual needs of the school district. So maybe some of the assumptions that they made weren't exactly right. Maybe if at this elementary school, your core spaces, media center, lunchroom, things like that, are big enough to handle an addition, maybe there's an addition at this elementary school and you don't need to build a new one. Whole new school. Again, we encourage those kinds of studies before school districts decide exactly what bond referendum amount needs to be. Yeah, I think just anything, the more information you can have, the better your decisions are. Sure, sure. And decisions equal money. Yes. And oftentimes these need to be done a number of months in advance because if November is the is the vote day, ballot day, yep. ballot day, yep. then by July or August, the number needs to be set. So sometime early in the year, that study needs to take place yes. and be completed by April, May so that the discussions and debates can begin, so that the number can be set by July or August, so that the referendum can be properly voted on by November. So that's the goal. Interesting. That's all I have for you guys. Looking through my questions here, I think you guys have nailed them all. Is there anything in closing that you guys would like to bring up or just well, towards think, next November? Yeah, it's just <laughs> plan. That's what I would say. And especially for the bond, you like I completely agree with Jeff. We do the same thing. We call it facilities master plan. Come up with the amount that we the school needs. And there's a lot of planning that goes in there. We also go out do the community meetings. Get, basically, you have, it's all dependent on the polling. You need to get 60% for the community to pass. behind it. Yes. Be behind it. it feels like you guys are yeah. being transparent yep. with that number. Yep. We only need 50.1% here, so I'm okay. glad of that. And what's the number you need, It's Kanal? about 60%. 60%. Yeah, close wow. to 60 there would have been a lot less school building yeah. going on in the Carolinas had that been the case here. So we found another difference yeah. in the West yeah. and the East. There we go. No, I think it's been a fun conversation. I think we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, it's interesting to find out how many similarities there are, and then again, how many differences there are. But uh, ultimately, we're all pulling and pushing in the same direction. Same end goal. Awesome. Thank you both. Enjoy the rest of your afternoons, and uh, hope to talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this episode of Construction Insiders, we encourage you to check out our website at cominggroup.com. That's cumming-group.com, where you can find our full knowledge library under the Insights tab. It's all great stuff. We're really passionate about it. We hope you'll check it out. Thanks for listening.